0: First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Sue Vankham Tamavangza, author of How to Pronounce Knife.
1: I remember... Someone telling me that, you know, no one is going to want to publish or buy a book by someone whose name they can't
0: pronounce. We'll be back with Suvankam Vangza, in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com/firstdraftwriters. That's p a t r e o n.com/firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad free and pitch free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask no please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is poet and fiction writer Tama Tamavangza. Her short story collection, How to Pronounce Knife, features stories of immigrants and refugees exploring dislocation, isolation, and the inherent clashes between their traditional cultures and the new societies they live in. Tamavangsa was born in Thailand to Lao refugee parents and lives in Toronto, where she was raised. Many of her stories feature mothers and daughters at odds between tradition and new ways, as well as the fractures that can happen between women and the roles the world is asking them to fulfill. From worm pickers to nail salon workers, accountants, and deadbeats, how to Pronounce Knife offers readers a glimpse into the ways all of us are struggling to belong. We began the discussion with Suvankam Tamavangza, talking to me about her name.
1: When no one tries to say it at all, that, you know, it just feels like, oh, I mean, I don't mind helping, you know, at all to get it right. It's like one time I did a reading and the host said, well, this hard, this name is hard to pronounce, so why don't we just have her come up here and read. Um, So I had to say it myself or like the person didn't even try it. So that was kind of sad.
0: (laughs) Tell me a little bit. I know you started off as a poet. How did you end up, you know, what brought you to writing in general?
1: I really loved books, reading them, making them. Before I started writing poetry books, I printed and bound my own poetry books. And then a publisher discovered those books that I made at a small press fair. And then she published uh, my next three poetry books. Um, And then I just, I wanted writing to feel new to me. Um, I didn't want to have people to have expectations of what I do and what I can do and what was lovely about the fiction was nobody was waiting for it and so I, writing felt new to me again and I could do things that could surprise myself as a writer. I remember someone telling me that you know no one is going to want to publish or buy a book by someone whose name they can't pronounce and so I wanted to see this for myself so I've published myself, and I found places that would, you know, bookstores that would um, keep me on their inventory just to show that it can be done.
0: What did that bring up for you when people told you just by your name alone, as if that stood for anything that's in your brain? Right. And and, and right. what did that recall for you maybe from your whole life?
1: Oh, um, it made me angry because I knew what I could do. And I knew my own, the value of my own writing. And that was just their opinion. I wanted to go out there and see for myself. Or I wanted to change if that was a real idea. um, Or if that was the truth, I wanted to see it for myself. And it wasn't. It was just something somebody said, I guess, to discourage
0: me. And did you have that in other ways growing up?
1: Well, I did struggle with the language just because we didn't speak English at home um, so when I went to school uh, the way that I spoke English was not like everyone else um but i never I never felt like when I never felt the way that I spoke English was um a point of shame, I just knew that it was different, um, and that I saw language differently than the people around me.
0: Did you grow up in a in a family that told stories there There's something about your short stories that seem a little bit like folk tales? Um,
1: it's because I think because voice and sound are so important. Um, and when people tell those stories. The idea of performance, uh, sound and voice, those things are held at great value. Um, it's not just to tell the story or to write it down, but when you say it out loud, it has a different life. Um, yeah, my mom and dad told me stories all the time. Um, And even when I was there, you know, uh, they would tell me, they would re-tell me a story that, uh, like if we went shopping, for example, then we would come home and they would retell the story of shopping, Um, but I was there as well. Um, And then we would correct each other on what we saw and did and what occurred during that shopping
0: trip. Do you have siblings?
1: I have a brother. He's younger than me. Um, Actually, I have a picture of the first day that my parents brought him home. Um, And I totally look so stressed out (laughs) because no one told me who this person was and how from this moment on, I had to share my love. And I could see, like, I know my own face and I could see in that photo what that what that face, what that expression means this day.
0: One of the things that I noticed in your stories that there's a few repeating ideas, and one of them has to do with the relationship between mothers and daughters, and also that many, or at least two that I can think of off the bat, mothers end up leaving the families.
1: What I wanted to do with the story collection is talk about women in a way, or have women be at the center of stories in a way that we don't often see them. For example, in Slingshot, the at the center of the story is a seventy-year-old woman. Um, when we encounter older women in stories. They are often dying a burden to the family, or they hate themselves. Um, But this is a story that does none of that. Um, She's in her power. She's wise, and she can walk away from someone who's dumb. (laughs) And um, often um, when we see women in stories, they are also mothers, um, or they value, or they want to be mothers. With women, I think, are not allowed to not want at some point to be a mother. And these stories um, give you a chance to see them in a non-motherly way. Like, for example, in um, You Are So Embarrassing, the mother says to the daughter that mothers don't know that they don't want to be a mother until you actually have a child and then it's too late. You can't take it back. Or a mother leaves a family. I think there's, you know, women can have opportunities to not have responsibility or to push responsibility away and be given the space to be messy, to fail. Um, And these stories give them that room.
0: Yeah, the one you just mentioned, you are so embarrassing. So you have um, this mother and this daughter, and it's really highlighting some of the differences between the generations. You see the child becoming more Western, more, in this case, Probably Canadian, and she's embarrassed by the mom, and and the division between the parent and the child is is really obvious. And as as the young girl is, she changed her name to Celine from Shan, mm-hmm. Shantakad, and the mom mm-hmm. doesn't quite understand. And and that quote that you said, she writes, uh, you write, no one really wants to be a mother but you can't know this for sure until you are one. And so that separation between them is coming anyway. And even Mm -hmm. though the daughter is kind of pushing the mother away, it's interesting because the mother is saying this to the daughter, but at the same time, she maybe wants an out too.
1: Right. As the daughter is pushing the mother away, the mother preempts that and pushes her away too. Um, I had a friend who, she was she had her first child and then she she she's very honest she says she told me what if you know my child is born and um I don't like it because you know there's a pressure when you have children that you're supposed to love your child and adore it and you're not allowed to like not like it and everybody around you is like um telling me that the baby's adorable and you're not allowed to not or like to like the person that you made um, and you know and when she told me this, I was very fascinated and also I really appreciated her honesty because you barely get to see that that kind of bareness of feeling from somebody and I wanted to put that in a story. you know on the one hand, that moment between the mother and the daughter is also the teenage year where you make that separation. I notice on social media platforms, everybody takes a photo of their child when the child is less than two years old, like lots and lots of photos. But I never ever see a photo of the child when they're a sour teenager. (laughs) Um, And I just, I wanted to go into that moment as to why you stop looking at the child in the same way.
0: It seems like in this story, too, you are so embarrassing that they couldn't overcome that distance, that you see kind of the mother having a, a, a fractured relationship with her daughter and going back and watching her from her car, but not being able to connect right. in person.
1: Some moments, you hope that they'll pass that you bridge this broken moment that's been broken between the two. But sometimes that moment that's broken, uh, you know, there's no bridge um, and it remains broken. And um, I wanted to show how something that's done in the past can have a ripple effect into the future um, and change everything about the future.
0: One of the things that I noticed about your stories, too, is that a lot of them are retrospective. So they might open in in a moment, usually when there's a daughter who's young and in school, maybe anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to teenagerhood. And then you learn kind of at the end of the story that they're an adult looking back, mm-hmm. and this is a, a, a structure or a theme that you used a lot. I wanted to ask you about that. When
1: I was a child, um, anytime I was sad or happy or brave or strong, um, there was no one there but myself um, to witness that. And one of the powers of writing is that you can go back and you can tell yourself, you know, I see you. Um, And that, so that structure for me is just um, telling myself that, you know, a child can have these deep feelings, can understand what is going on. Um, Maybe not in the moment, but definitely when they get older. Um, But I also... I love the surprise um, that all along um, it's an adult talking, and one of the one of the things that I've seen from or that I've received in terms of responses from readers is that they feel a nostalgia in these stories, um, and I think. That's so amazing in that that's not their life. They, they don't know what, or not everybody has had uh, a fermented fish sauce, yet at the end of the story, they feel nostalgic, like they've been eating that their whole entire lives, and they get teary-eyed um, at not being able to have a particular fish sauce made fermented fish sauce made by a particular person. Um, I wanted to make people forget who they were and uh, to feel deeply for these stories, to feel like that it happened to them. I mean, it's one thing for me to see and hear or to create a moment. Um, it's another for a reader to feel... Or to question, like, is this real? I can't believe this is not real. Um, Or, like, to be curious about the real life behind the story.
0: One of the stories that was like that was called The Edge of the World. Can we talk about that story?
1: So, Edge of the World is about a mother that leads a family you enter the story at a moment where it doesn't explain it's why the mother leaves the family. Um, but there are these small moments where, as a reader, you're wondering, oh, is this the moment where the mother thinks about leaving the family? Um, so the mother in the story doesn't know that the world is round. She thinks it's last. And the story ends on, not on an on an image, but the story gets to a point where the daughter sees an image of the world. And even though the mother is gone um, and the daughter is a grown adult, um, she sees on television an image of the world from outer space and it's round. And she says out loud to her mother, as if she was there, that um, she look, it is round. Um, and it ends. The whole story ends on the on the sound of laughter, on an image of being inside someone's mouth.
0: And there's a moment in there that is interesting. Like the roles that the men play in a lot of your stories are are definitely secondary, but very influential on on the characters' lives and and how it goes. And in, in this story, this daughter is noticing when the mom leaves, you have this paragraph very short that says, my father did not grieve. He had done all of this life's grieving when he became a refugee to lose your love, to be abandoned by your wife was a thing of luxury. Even it meant you were alive. Mm -hmm. And I love that because what many of your characters and all your stories have been through is like maybe for, for Westerners who live a life of comfort and never had to go to, another country or weren't refugees, didn't have to seek solace in some way, that would be the worst thing that happened. But when you're really just trying to survive and fight for your life and you get this other chance, everything else just seems extra. Mm -hmm.
1: In that moment, I wanted to explain well, one thing I don't like as a person is I can't stand other people's pity. Um, I don't like people feeling sorry for me, Um, which, you know, I don't like the idea that um, you, in order to move people, you make them cry or feel sorry for you or be sad. Um, And I wanted to explain why some people don't cry um, at certain moments. Um, And in that moment, um, yeah, I wanted to explain why there will be no drama here. But then at the same time, it is so dramatic, right, um, to describe a scene where a man, his wife leaving him is uh, is considered a luxury because it means he's alive and he has something to leave.
0: I noticed for that story, which is similar to, to many of your stories, in, in terms of how you craft the endings they sort of go back maybe and touch on something in the beginning like in the very beginning of the story the daughter was four and she's watching the mother and she's looking at her eating chocolates and laughing and and looking into her mouth like her mouth was so wide and she could see the half-eaten chocolate in there (laughs) and then it ends with her kind of looking at her own mouth in the mirror I'm just curious about endings in general for your stories, because your stories are very short, so they have to be very concentrated and have these, I mean, every story needs to have a potent ending, but you you, you are very economical with what you're saying.
1: I like the story to be self-contained, so what I give you in the beginning, I want you to hold on to that when you get to the end. Like, everything that you need to know in that moment has, or for the story has been given to you. And you, as a reader, uh, carry, like, that, that first image, you carry that to the very end. And that ending has meaning because the distance isn't that far for you as a reader when you encounter it, even though the distance in the story could be
0: wide. One story that I really enjoyed a lot was called The Universe Would Be So Cruel. It just really touched me. There's such a moment of selflessness in here. and It's about a man named Mr. Vong. And he's known for his wedding invitation printing. He has this extra special font for for the Lao language and there's also superstition involved that, that that the way he puts out the presentation like the way that he prints the invitation the way he lays out the fonts the way he dries the ink all have to do with if the marriage will be a success And then he's making invitations for his daughter's wedding, which hold, you know, he got real gold flecks from from Laos and and worked really hard on them. Can you talk about this story? Is it okay if we talk about the ending?
1: Yeah, one thing that when I set out to write this story, I noticed that uh, when we come across immigrants or refugees and stories, they have a lot of forbearance. If somebody is racist or cruel, unkind, they forbear it. Um, but Mr. Vong is does not. Uh, when someone treats him horribly, he fights back. Um, and in the story, um, it's very much like *Edge of the World*. In that moment where, where something horrible has happened but that scene is, is very is it's not opened up because that character because that moment is private and as readers um, you don't get that you have to fill it in yourself so a single word like jilted does so much I don't need a paragraph, I don't mean 10 pages to describe to people what jilted is, you know, in that moment when you encounter that single word alone as its own sentence, as its own paragraph, that there's a moment here that's awful, but we don't have to go into it. Let's respect this character and let her have this moment by herself. And in the end, uh, Mr. Vong, who is the best at his craft of making wedding invitations, in order to comfort his daughter, he takes the responsibility of why the groom doesn't show up. He blames it on the way that he printed these wedding invitations. Um, He tells his daughter that he didn't send out all of the wedding invitations. Um, and so that brought bad luck to that moment in her life um, because it's so much easier to take that responsibility than to tell somebody that someone's been awful to them or that somebody does not love them. Or in, there's a particular line that says what felt like love only felt like love, it was not love, which is a really difficult sentence to handle because if it's love, shouldn't it feel like love? Um, How can it only felt like love and not be love? Um,
0: Is there a story that you want to talk about? Because I have a few others, but I want to also get to stories that you want to discuss.
1: I mean, I have my favorites, but sometimes they change. They change over time um, today like in particular, today, I was looking over a passage, um, and I really love picking worms um, the story <laughs> <laughs> and um one thing that I hear from readers or, or uh actually reviewers, is that they often talk about privilege or white privilege in the workplace. And to me, when I wrote it, that was not what I had in mind. To me, that was a 14-year-old boy who who ends up being boss at a worm picking farm. And, you know, he's got power. Um, he, he, he's the lead. Um, but what's More power, but at the end of the day, he's still a fourteen-year-old boy. And what's more powerful than a fourteen-year-old boy with all this privilege? It's a fourteen-year-old girl who can break your heart. Um, And to me, that's the story: is the is the fourteen-year-old girl who breaks his heart in the end. Um, And I don't understand. Well, not I don't understand, but I want readers to push a little bit more or to go a bit further, not to stop at that 14-year-old boy being the boss. I want them to go a little further, a little deeper to the very end of the story.
0: So the 14-year-old girl, her mom is working and the girl's going to school and she's busy. But then on Saturdays, she ends up helping her mom. And they're, they're basically going through these fields picking up worms, they go very early. And her mom is like the worm whisperer. She's incredible <laughs> at, at, at finding these worms. She takes off her shoes, she feels the earth, she has a certain way that she affixes her containers to her ankles. And she moves very slowly and gets the worms. And this boy, James, there's there's a school dance and and the mom wants the daughter to go. And James had asked her. So he was already interested in her. And so the mom, you see this trajectory with the mom because she likes James at first. She meets him. She thinks he's a nice young boy. And then he wants to come and work with them like he's interested in their life in in a way that probably most white people aren't. And he wants to go with them to, to the worm capturing job and he goes and works for free and then all of a sudden he's 14 and he he's not even as good as the mother and so he gets promoted and you see her anger the mother's anger just seethe at him and the injustice
1: yeah but it's also I mean he's not malicious it's just that in the structure of that world the farm owners choose him um so uh, so this is why, in the end, when he gets rejected, we're sad for him. We have compassion for him. Um, he's not an evil character.
0: The other story that I think brought people into a world that might be very stereotypically Asian was the Manny Petty. It takes place in a manicurist studio, and this, the woman who owns it brings her brother in who was a boxer, which is, I mean, right. already kind of funny to think about a boxer becoming a manicurist um, who didn't like toes. He didn't like toes.
1: Well, I read a profile of the nail salon in the New York Times. I know the working conditions are not the greatest, um, but in mine, I mean, I have a lot of friends and cousins who work in nail salons and they are not sad about their jobs and they make a lot of money. That's why they do it. And they own their own places there. They own their own stations. They own everything. And part of the reason why they work there is because they get to work with family. And I wanted to bring that aspect, that intimate aspect into to tell a
0: story. But it was also clearly there, again, the power structure, and and part of it is just the difference in culture, because Raymond kind of falls for this one client called Miss Emily. He thinks that there's a real connection there, and she's wealthy, Mm -hmm. and she's nice to him, but the sister's Mm kind of like, what are you doing? Like, what are you (laughs) thinking? And he says, you know, it's better for me, I would much rather daydream about this than kind of be... Already, maybe bitter or thinking I can't do it. Like I'm okay to be in my dreams, but he sees that she wow. has a husband and that it's never going to happen for them. But he just needed that hope,
1: right? We all have a sister like Raymond does, right? It's sometimes our best friend, our mother. Um, like when when we're excited about something or someone, um, someone will say, "Well, have you thought about this?" or does he you know do they do you think you have a chance or or they bring in some reality about the situation that you never thought of and then in some way they take away this capacity to dream to hope, this possibility uh, to imagine love for yourself and I think I think that's very, cruel people should be allowed to have these dreams even if they feel impossible um you know like a lot of people say that's just reality or that's just the way it is and I don't like that and I wanted a story to show why why you shouldn't take you know that sometimes having like reality is difficult enough you don't have to tell somebody about reality
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Okay. I was really excited to see this. Okay. Um, I want to read a passage from Tennessee Williams' short story collection, One Arms. I really love the way he puts together a sentence um, and the way that things unfold or this or, and um, the kinds of situations he puts his characters in. So this story, One Arm, is similar to Manny Petty in that the main character is a boxer. However, the main character in this story, named Oliver, he gets into... He's a, a, He's a boxer, but he gets into an accident, so he loses an arm, and so his career is over. He only has one arm. And the kind of work that he finds is he becomes a prostitute. And um, as a prostitute, he ends up killing one of his clients um, who got a bit too rough with him and so he's in jail, and he's about to be executed. Um, And this is, you know, because we've talked about the endings of my stories, I wanted to read this really, really brilliant ending to One Arm by Tennessee Williams. And uh, we enter the story right when the main character is being executed. During the last Few hours his attention returned to the letters. He read them over and over, whispering them aloud. And when the warden came to conduct him to the death chamber, he said, I would like to take these here along with me. He carried them into the death chamber with him as a child takes a doll or a toy into a dentist's office to give the protection of the familiar and loved. The letters were resting in the fork of his thighs when he sat down in the chair. At the last moment, a guard reached out to remove them, but Oliver's thighs closed on them in a desperate vise that could not have been easily broken. The warden gave a signal to let them remain. Then the moment came. The atmosphere hummed and darkened, Bolts from across the frontiers of the unknown the practically named and employed but mysterious power that first invested a static of space with heat and brilliance and motion were channeled through Oliver's nerve cells for an instant and then shot back across those immense frontiers, having claimed and withdrawn whatever was theirs in the boy whose lost right arm had been known as lightning in leather. The body, unclaimed after death, was turned over to a medical college to be used in a classroom laboratory. The men who performed the the dissection were somewhat abashed by the body under their knives. It seemed intended for some more August purpose, to stand in a gallery of antique sculpture. Touched only by light through and contemplation, for it had the of some broken Apollo that no one was likely to carve Oops, again. But death has never been much in the way of completion.
0: Do you want to say a little more about why you chose that?
1: I chose that particular. Um, spot in the story because of its location, it being the ending. But the way that, you know, this is a scene that could could be quite dramatic, but it's restrained, and that is where the drama is. But there's also, even though this, this is a really sad moment in the main character's life, There's also something really beautiful to the way that the electricity is is described or how the moment is described. Like when uh, Williams writes, then the moment came, the atmosphere hummed and darkened bolts from across the frontiers of the unknown. Um, Like instead of just saying he was electrocuted, It's described in bits and pieces for us. And the language is so beautiful that we're not really seeing that this is actually also a really incredibly sad moment for this person as well. But there's also, you know, near the end, something incredibly, I mean, it sounds sad, but it's also incredibly funny in that these medical students, who have these bodies donated to them to, so that they could practice uh, cutting into a body. Um, they, they, uh, they, they blush. They, they, they were somewhat abashed by the body under their knives. Um, they're kind of embarrassed as they don't come across in the bodies that they dissect anything so beautiful as this body right now in front of them.
0: Can you share a passage that you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: Okay, so this is the ending of Picking Worms, but it's also the ending of the short story collection. James arrived alone. He was dressed in a black tuxedo, hair slipped back, and wearing black shoes that clicked on the concrete. He had in his hand a pink thing that flopped, a flower. I had turned out all the lights. It looked like no one was home. The street lamp was like a spotlight. I see the front lawn, and when he walked into the light, I could see his whole face. It was small at first, and then it got bigger, his forehead looming closer. He rang the doorbell, then he rang it again when after a few minutes, I still did not open the door. He started banging and struggled to turn the knob, but it was locked. He grabbed and pulled at his own hair, and it came loose and wild and undone. I saw it all standing on the other side of the door in the dark, watching him in the golden circle that framed the peephole. I did nothing, not even when I heard him sob. I pressed a finger up to the people and held it there. I did not want him to see my open eye. Um, for this ending, it had been something else. Um, I had James after he grabs and pulls at his own hair and it becomes loose and wild and undone. I have him call the main character a derogatory cruel, awful name, but she um, is thrilled by it because she feels that to make someone hate you is far more powerful than somebody who loves you. Someone who loves you can forget you, but someone who hates you can never forget you. Um, So she feels um, that she's made this person remember her in a way powerful and unforgettable and she's un she's not afraid of the of the thing he calls her um, but when I sent out, when this story was sent out to uh, literary magazines they were uncomfortable with the ending and um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the editors turned it down um, but at but the story found a home at Plowshares, and the editor asked me to change. Instead of rejecting it outright, she asked me if I would be willing to change the ending. And, um, and I only had two days to do this um, before, before they went to publication, And I thought about it, and I decided to end with just what came to mind was um, the golden circle of a peephole, and then um, someone putting a hand up there and not not wanting someone to see their eye. It's definitely the better ending.
0: (laughs) Where do you write?
1: I write at my dining room table on most of the times on a piece of paper and sometimes um I do a lot of writing in my head like if I can't remember to put it down later or to type it up later then it wasn't important but a lot of writing it just takes place in my head and I'm haunted by like a word or a sentence
0: what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing
1: oh I try to do that all the time um because I do want to get away from it I took on a job preparing taxes because you know taxes is so far away from writing but then I ended up still thinking about writing because the tax Form is really a container for stories. It tells you what people's names are, uh, their relationships, um, their job, um, how they've lived their life in that particular year. Um, I live and work in my own head so much. I try to get away from writing by also by taking boxing lessons. Um, What I like about boxing is that You have to be present in your body. Um, But then boxing only made me think about writing even more and the way inspiration works or the way that I want to work. Um, When you get into the ring in boxing, everything you have, everything someone has taught you, you have to bring it in that into that moment and then you have to go. You can't wait around for inspiration. And when I write, that's the way that I want to work where I don't wait around, I just go.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I've been writing for like 25 years. So I'm at a point where I don't, I'm comfortable with not showing it to anybody. I work by myself. And then when I feel it's polished or I can take it as far as I can, I uh, give it to my agent. And she is, her name is Sarah Bolin, and she is also, or she has worked also as an editor. And so she sees it before I send it out. And she's very difficult to impress.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? Um,
1: I don't remember rejection I mean I've received thousands you know but um I just remember the thrill of when a story gets accepted I don't I don't remember the people who rejected me um I think some rejections are valuable like uh you know in the story collection the school bus driver I sent it out to the literary magazine Noon which is edited by Diane Williams and it was rejected Um, but then a year later she wrote to say she can't stop thinking about it and if the story was still available she would love to publish it and I thought about how lovely that was Um, like what if the story was accepted in the first round and then it was published I probably would not you know think of that is valuable because it would have come so easy. But I really love the idea that I wrote a short story that haunted Diane Moon so much that... Even, you know, a lot of things happen in a person's life in a year. And for a year to pass and for her to still think of that story, I mean, for me, it wasn't so much the publication. It was the stuff that happened behind the scenes for that publication. It was the rejection for the whole year that made that issue in which the story appears in me so valuable to me.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: I really love the word here. I know that when we think of language, um, we're often really drawn to, I think, the image that comes to mind is um, is a rose. Um, we're very drawn to the brightness and bloom of the petals. We don't think of the stem and the thorn, the thing that, that lifted that bloom. Um, and for me, the word here um, is a lot like the stem and thorn of, of a flower. And um, because it's not really a very beautiful word, um, it's a practical word. Um, it, makes, it forces the writer to uh, build around it and to have faith that the reader will understand what here means as a particular location, but it's also a word that demands the reader to do a lot of work to fill in what here
0: is. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. It has been it's been very fun to talk about craft and the story. Um, often I get questions. About a political question or a question about my real life. So it's really nice to just focus on the story because that's what I'm what that's what I set out to do and that's what I'm here to do. And it's just so nice to be given the space to do it.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Suvankam Tamavangza, author of How to Pronounce Knife. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Yang Huang whose book, My Old Faithful, focuses on a close-knit Chinese family who are exposed for their strengths and flaws through 10 interconnected stories. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. Anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash draft writers. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ursula Hagee and Aral Mazes. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.